Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This week on Wealth Track, a rare interview with prescient financial thought leader Paul McCulley, who warned of the forces leading to the Great Recession. What does he see building in the economy today? Next on Consuelo Mack Wealth Track. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. Few investors have the prescience of this week's guest, which is why we have asked him to come back to WealthTrack and give us an update on his views of the state of the economy, Federal Reserve policy, and investment climate. We will also ask him to make a few portfolio suggestions. He is Paul McCulley, Senior Fellow in Financial Macroeconomics and Adjunct Professor of Law at Cornell Law School, where he teaches a multidisciplinary course for law and business school students, combining economics, monetary policy, global finance, and behavioral finance, as well as sharing his professional experiences. Before his part-time academic career, Paul was a great investor and financial thought leader, senior partner at PIMCO, founding member of its Investment Policy Committee, along with firm founder Bill Gross, author of the influential monthly Global Central Bank Focus and manager of PIMCO's huge short-term trading desk, overseeing an estimated $400 billion in assets. McCulley retired from PIMCO in 2010 to write, think, and speak, and otherwise lead a more balanced life, which he did until a brief interruption in 2015 when he was lured back to PIMCO for a few months as chief economist by his former boss and close friend Bill Gross before Gross left the firm for another. Well, McCulley has since resumed that more balanced and still full life with teaching thrown into the mix. I mentioned McCulley's prescience. Long before the 2008-2009 financial crisis, he identified the powerful and destructive rise of what he called the shadow banking system, the unregulated institutions feeding the housing and credit bubble. And he coined the phrase Minsky moment after economist Hyman Minsky's theory that financial stability, as this country had during the Alan Greenspan Goldilocks era, ultimately leads to financial instability as people and institutions take on more and more risk. That is exactly what happened, and as we all know too well, resulted in the housing bubble ensuing credit crisis and what is called the Great Recession. We asked McCulley to give us his views of the current state of the economy, starting with the forces he sees building in the economy now. I think the economy is approaching the runway for a soft landing. The last time we had a genuine soft landing in our economy was in 95, 96, 97. The Fed had a tightening period, a nasty tightening period in 94, 95, and then they turned within six months from the last hike to the first ease, and they did lubricate the runway for a soft landing, and the expansion continued for several more years. So that so is not a recession, not but a recession. soft landing. That means kind of a, a slowdown a de- in a deceleration. A deceleration. For those of us who have forgotten what it was like in 95, 96. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a deceleration. 
um, to a pace that is less ebullient but is longer lasting. Now, is this being uh, kind of orchestrated by the Fed, or is it just the way things are going to happen, the way things are looking I, now? I, I think it's a function of a number of factors. Mm -hmm. The expansion is old. It's approaching a decade. Right. Um, and so, therefore, we don't have a lot of residual pent-up demand. Mm -hmm. You certainly think not. Mm -hmm. um, so it's old in time. But what history tells us is that expansions don't die of natural causes at a certain age. Expansions die because of excesses that develop. And the two primary expansion-ending excesses are inflation, are excesses, speculation mm -hmm. on Wall Street. And sometimes you get both. Right. And if you're getting excesses on Main Street, the labor market's too hot, capital investment's too hot. Just the concept of too hot disturbs me. But if it's too hot <laughs> and you get an inflationary response uh, in wages and prices, then the Fed can lean on it uh, to slow it down. Right. Conversely, you can get excesses on Wall Street, normally in credit, mm -hmm that ultimately lead to a Minsky moment type of outcome. So in that instance, the excess is not leading to a recession because the Fed's trying to deal with it. Mm -hmm. It's because the bubble burst and you get uh, the Fed having to respond to that like they did after the Great Recession in 2008 and nine. So we're seeing neither of those, we're right? Seeing we're seeing neither one of those. Or in, on Wall Street. On no. Wall Street. So therefore, no. I don't have the predicates to forecast a recession. And I particularly am not getting them from Main Street. Uh, the average person in America is finally maybe getting a 3% raise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If we're going to call 3% raises in America excess, then <laughs> there's something fundamentally wrong with how we're looking at the world. So there's no reason for the Fed to shut down the expansion because the labor market is overheated. In fact, I would argue the opposite of that. From the standpoint of excesses on Wall Street, that's a bigger concern. Mm -hmm. It's actually a serious concern. And I think part of the normalization process the Fed's been doing for the last three years, which looks to be about over now at two and a quarter. I mean, mm -hmm. like all the way to two and a quarter. So you think the normalization process is, is about, about over? Okay. It's uh, about over. So it's just over. at a lower level than everyone was anticipating. Exactly. Except for someone like you who kind of were saying that's where it should be. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the, technically put, the neutral Fed funds rate, the neutral policy rate, Right. has fallen dramatically over our lifetime, including the most recent cycle. We went all the way to zero, mm -hmm. and then you come back to normal, but normal is not three, four, or five. Right. It starts with a two, and, in, uh, and they're at two and a quarter now. I'm not saying that categorically they won't tighten again. That would mm -hmm. be foolish of me. Uh, but literally, the first meeting 
of the new year for the FOMC, they announced to the world... They were pausing. We're pausing. Right. Which you, they could, uh, Mr. Powell could have been a little bit more effusive about it, but he didn't want Wall Street to rally more than 500 points on that day. Because for Wall Street, the notion that you're not going to have a recession, but you're going to have a soft landing, inflation is well contained, uh, is a very bullish mm-hmm. signal. Mm-hmm. So the, the fourth quarter of last year, the, the correction in the market, you think that that was actually a positive development as far as the Fed is concerned? Yes, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. I think the Fed wanted to get Wall Street's attention because the Fed was seeing excesses start to emerge, not just in the broad equity and bond markets. It was more in the equity than mm-hmm. the bond market, but in particular in levered lending. Levered loan right, market. Right, the loan market. In fact, right. they were raising their hands saying, you know, guys, you know, show, show some circumspection here. Mm-hmm. And Wall Street wasn't paying attention. Those were instruments where people were looking for income, higher yields, yeah. right? And, yeah. and the big thing with the levered loan market is you could see a systemic degradation in credit quality or underwriting standards and credit quality, okay. but particularly the underwriting standards which is very natural as an expansion gets old. Mm-hmm. Now, if it turns out that Wall Street goes off on a bull terror, then we're back to where we were again. So therefore, the Fed's not finished. But if Wall Street will behave itself and not push the limit mm-hmm. of risk and leverage, uh, then... I think we're probably finished uh, on the tightening episode. Now you have the whole concept of what's going on with fiscal policy, what's going on with our president, what's going on with trade, and all of that enters into another basket of risk. Mm -hmm. And it's not positive, by the way. But notwithstanding the fact that I don't think he is the right man for the job called the Oval Office, Mm -hmm. I don't think that his mistakes are going to end this economic expansion. He can tweet all day long, but he doesn't control monetary policy. Uh, So that's interesting. So the Fed still is calling the shots in many ways. The straw that stirs the drink always has been, always will be. And why is that, Paul? When, when you have, think of the complexity of our economy and just the, the diversity, the, the strength of it, all of the different decisions that are made every day, why is it that this, you know, kind of small independent <laughs> agency still has that much power over what are very complex markets that are, that are you know, markets where trillions and trillions of dollars are traded every day and... Why now, is that? Notwithstanding the fact that Alan Greenspan was called the maestro, yes, they don't have unlimited power to fine-tune this huge economy. So your instinct is right that there are limits right. to so how it's... much they can fine-tune. And I think those limits are probably a little bit wider than they used to be because of globalization, deregulation mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. So they have less power. Less power, of- but they're still incredibly powerful for a very simple reason. Yeah. 
they have government granted monopoly power over the creation of money from thin air. If I wanted to do it, or you wanted to do it, or anybody else wanted to do it, it's called counterfeiting and is a crime, <laughs> where it is the Fed's job. They're the only people who have the right to do it. Mm -hmm. That makes you powerful. If you have monopoly power over the creation of money. Especially well, the reserve currency in the In world. the reserve currency. So right. you actually can impact not just the U.S. economy, but the global economy through the global mobility of investment. So they're incredibly powerful. Now, conceptually, Congress could change that arrangement. And in fact, in a different space, when mm -hmm. I'm being a wonky scholar, I write about this quite frequently, and that there's no reason that Congress shouldn't have more of a role in setting the Fed's goals. Why do you think the Fed's mandate could use some tweaking or reworking or perhaps complete, a complete overhaul by Congress? I think the Fed's mandate philosophically is very good. I mean, who can argue with the three things right. that they're told to do? We want to have maximum employment. Right, so full employment, great. I, I'm in, I'm in favor of that. Price stability. We want to have inflation stability. Right. It's called price stability, but it's actually inflation, inflation stability. And then the third variable is moderate long-term interest rates. Let's forget that for a second and get back so what's to wrong the with two. those? There's nothing wrong with them, but they, in some respects, are platitudes. Congress says, we want to have full employment. We want to have low and stable inflation. You go, you go do that. Mm -hmm. The Fed goes, do that. But our economy has been changing dramatically. And in particular we found that you can go really low on the unemployment rate and the inflation echo, you can barely hear. Right. We've gone from 10 to 4 and inflation has been flatlined. In fact, for a good chunk of the last seven, eight years, it's been below the Fed's target. So, so a tight labor market no longer begets higher inflation. Exactly. Right? Okay. And therefore, I think it would be responsible for Congress to say, let's do a little bit of defining of the mandate and put some numbers on it. And an example I use sometimes is, can you envision a world where Congress passed a piece of legislation giving a mandate to the IRS and they instructed the IRS to proceed towards fair taxation. That was the only thing they did. They just said, give us fair taxation, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then let the IRS pick the tax brackets. I can't no, conceive of that world. So that's what the Congress has done for the Fed right? It's in monetary policy. We would like to have... Full employment and low and stable inflation. You go do that. We're, we're going to wash our hands of it. You need to come up here and tell us 
how you're doing every six months, but we're not going to give you any more details. We're not going to define those terms for you. Whereas on the opposite side, on fiscal policy, I guarantee you that the terms are defined for the IRS. They're not implementing fair taxation. Right. They are implementing a set of brackets that Congress voted on and the president signed. Uh, Gives you one of the underlying reasons why the Fed is so powerful, a question that you ask, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that unlike the IRS, one, they can print money, but independent of the fact they can print money, is they get to define success. That we think these numbers are consistent with full employment and price stability. And my incremental change, I'm not a revolutionary type of guy here, my incremental change is for Congress to put some definitions, some numbers on on what the Fed does. Price stability and... Yeah, and... So is this this an academic exercise or... It's more than an academic exercise. In fact, the media hasn't picked up on it a lot, but the Fed itself is doing a big strategic review in the first half of 2019 about the framework in which it's using. It's not about day-to-day policy, but the architecture of what they do. And actually, I applaud them for that intensely. And there are a number of things in that review that they'll be looking at. But a key one is, over the last 10 years, the relationship between falling unemployment and rising inflation has fallen apart. Right. That relationship is at the bedrock of counter-cyclical policy. If the unemployment rate's getting too low, we hike rates. If the inflation rate is getting too low, we cut rates. That unemployment and inflation are going to move the opposite direction all of our lifetime. Economic forecasting and every econometric model. Exactly. It is the essence of the whole thing. But when that relationship uh, breaks down, right, and your framework, your operating framework is predicated on that relationship, maybe you should have a rethink strategic review. Right. Okay. If you are making tube televisions and someone invents the flat screen, I suggest that maybe you need a strategic review. <laughs> <laughs> so um, as far as investors are concerned, uh, you know, the best performing asset in 2018 were, was cash. cash. <laughs> <laughs> By far, you know, three-month treasury bills. Yeah. So um, what's the strategy now for 2019 in this kind of this new elongated environment? Um, and what are you doing with your retirement portfolio? <laughs> <laughs> I think that stocks and bonds responded appropriately to the Fed's hiking in 2018. So the fact that cash was the best performing asset in 2018 was not an accident. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if cash had not been 
the best performing asset in 2018. I don't think the Fed will be talking now about a pulse. The Fed wanted to normalize, get as far as they could away from zero. Mm -hmm. And they also wanted Wall Street to notice what they were doing. What do we do as investors? As investors. As, yes. As you know, I, particularly in retirement, since I don't have day-to-day -day responsibility for somebody else's portfolio, mm -hmm. take a longer-term horizon, you know, two, three, four, five mm -hmm. years. And actually, I think now is a really good time to be talking about that, what we used to call at PIMCO, the secular mm -hmm. horizon. I don't see a recession, and that's probably the most important thing for investors with a three-plus year horizon. Right. No recession. Number two is the Fed is essentially finished. And I say essentially because it depends in many respects on whether Wall Street got the message. Mm -hmm. Those are two big positives for taking risk. Mm -hmm. So for stocks. For our high yield bonds, high bonds. Um, areas within REITs and, um, and other you know, mm -hmm. investment mm -hmm. vehicles as well, all long dated assets mm -hmm. uh, that your viewers you know, right. have. That will give you higher quarter. returns than that two and a quarter percent and higher returns yeah, than inflation. Exactly. And right. now they are valued uh, right. for that. So then you have to think in terms okay, no excesses, no recession. The Fed's not going to beat me over the head with a baseball bat. Where do I want to be? And you can certainly say U.S. stocks. Mm -hmm. um, and that would be a core holding for most people anyway. But actually in the uh, soft landing scenario that I'm envisioning, the asset that's most appealing to me, not for all of your portfolio, but most appealing to me, is emerging market equities. So that would be your one investment for a long-term Emerging long market portfolio. Equities. equities. And why? What's the... And there's a very straightforward reason for that. The Fed is really, really powerful. And essentially, the Fed determines monetary policy for the world. You can get divergence where, you know, one central bank's hiking, the other central bank's easing. But those are exceptions. Mm -hmm. As a general proposition, the United States leads the global business cycle, period. Now, there are people who will say, well, China is going to overtake us. And my response is, you may be right. But I really don't want to entertain that proposition until you tell me when China is going to have a globally convertible freely traded currency. currency. Until you can tell me that, let's talk about, Wall, about China in the context of industries and jobs mm -hmm. and inflation. But when we're talking about global monetary policy, it's the no Fed is the anchor. And that means that emerging markets get whipsawed in both direction by the Fed. And here I'm not criticizing the Fed because the Fed has a U.S. mandate. Right. 
And so they're trying to fine tune that unemployment inflation trade off for the United States, not for the world, but for the United States. Right. If the Fed's on the move and the economy's fine, it's not good news for emerging markets. And they will tell you if you ask them. It's yeah. like, you know, I didn't do anything wrong, <laughs> but my currency's under massive pressure and I'm tightening monetary policy when I don't want to. Uh, I mean, I'm here in a sovereign country and I'm importing U.S. monetary policy. I don't like that. Looking out over the next several years, be importing a, if, a user-friendly U.S. Mm-hmm. monetary policy. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, the never-ending desire for more returns will move to the riskiest asset. And that would be emerging markets. Emerging market equities. All right. Paul McCulley, so great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us on WealthTrack. At the close of every WealthTrack, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is pay attention to the Federal Reserve. As Paul McCulley just explained, America's central bank is still the most powerful financial institution in the world. It has become increasingly open about its policies in recent years. What its chairman and policy statements say matter as they affect financial markets and economic conditions globally. You can follow what they are saying and doing by going to their website, federalreserve.gov. The old adage, don't fight the Fed, can now be expanded to include follow the Fed, which has never been easier to do. Next week, Treasury bond expert Robert Kessler returns to update us on the unappreciated value of U.S. Treasuries. In our extra interview this week exclusively on our website, Paul McCulley will share why he enjoys teaching so much. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy following us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thanks for watching. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.